Hey everyone, I want to tell you about a great new podcast. It's called The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser up to 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the election. Ride Home Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by Chris Suprin, candidate for Texas's third congressional district. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we're really excited to have you, and you have a, a fascinating background, and I want to dive right in. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your story? You're a former firefighter turned paramedic. You were a first responder at the Pentagon after 9-11, and uh, you also have kind of had a previous foray into politics. So tell our listeners how you got to where you are. Uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away is, I guess, where it started. Um, I had been active in the community, and it, sorry, I just outed myself as a Star Wars fan more than Star Trek, so I know the Trekkies are going to hate me, but um, was engaged on campaigns literally as young as 12. Uh, I had two hatched federal employee parents um, and had met our local congressman, and they couldn't volunteer uh, back in the mid-80s, but they could voluntold their son, so I got involved very young. Um, literally I was still in high school. I got my first appointment to a community board, uh, the commission on aging in Fairfax County, which everyone thought was a joke initially until I started talking about social security and the job training partnership act and title five of the older Americans act and things like that. But I've just been active forever in 2016. I'm probably best known for being the faithless elector in Texas on the Republican side who wouldn't vote for Trump. And that kind of started yeah, so let's, my- Let's talk about that. I think that's really fascinating. And I'm not sure even people are so familiar with this concept. You know, Some people call them Hamilton electors or faithless electors. The way that our presidential elections work is, yes, we vote in state level elections and there are the electoral college votes, but you actually are the embodiment of one of those electoral college votes. Is that correct? I was in 2016. Uh, the slate of electors changes every four years, and they're nominated by the parties, whether it's the Democrats, the Republicans, the Libertarians, the Greens, whoever. And they get to nominate their slate of candidates who they normally choose at their state level convention. So I'm pretty confident the Republicans are not going to have me back again um, as an elector, and that's fine. Um, and I'm running for a different office, which would make me ineligible for the Electoral College with the Democrats. 
And so once Donald Trump actually won the Electoral College, you as a elector, generally speaking, most people cast their vote for the winner of that electoral votes. But you're human. You don't like Donald Trump. You saw him as a clear and present danger, and you opted not to vote for him. So really, he didn't get the full 307 electoral votes that he claims, 306 that he claims. Really, he only got 305. Is that correct? Um, He had to get 304. There was another gentleman in Texas who was kind of always committed to Ron Paul um, secretly, and he, he didn't have a huge problem with Donald Trump so much as he just was more Ron Paul libertarian. So we got 304. So every time he says 306, I will normally tweet back at the president and say, no, you didn't get that many knucklehead. Well, what's so interesting is that our system, the way it's designed, still relies on people. It's not an automatic kind of, well, you won the presidential election, here's the electoral college. It's usually a rubber stamp. But what I find so fascinating is that you really did kind of take an electoral college vote away from him. So like you said, you're you're well known for that. I think you wrote an article in the New York Times, um, and that was kind of the how I first came across you. Um, but now you're actually getting back into electoral politics. So you're running in Texas's third congressional district now. Um, I imagine uh, immigration is probably a top issue of yours. Um, talk a little bit about that. Well, for me, it's a moral issue. As Americans, we talk about offering freedom and opportunity and the chance to make your life better. These are people who are coming and fleeing violence. They're uh, fleeing um, horrible, horrible poverty with the entire idea of just trying to make their life a little bit better. Uh, And I I am offended by anybody who thinks that the wall is the answer. I went down to Brownsville, Texas, and we crossed the border into Matamoros uh, about a week ago. And I was amazed by some of the conversations I had. Customs and Border Protection will tell you the wall itself, for somebody who's just trying to get into America and come work, it only slows them down about seven minutes. But for people who are seeking asylum, it's not a wall at all. It's not a deterrent. It's a lighthouse. It tells people where to go so that they can be picked up by border patrol and then they can start their asylum process. Interesting. So it's having a a reverse effect of what it was intended to do. Well, and worse right now, because of the administration's policies, there's this tent city, which has grown up in Matamoros of 700 to a thousand individuals, many of whom are children who are right there under the eye of the drug cartels. They're not safe. They rely on uh, volunteers who bring food. Many of them don't have anything with them except what's on their back. Um, And we're actually creating cartel members because the cartels are going in and finding the stronger uh, able-bodied people and recruiting them into their program and saying, look, we'll take care of you and your family. All you have to do is carry drugs for us or um, be an enforcer. We are creating the very problem we say we're trying to stop with the wall. And so what are some of your solutions to the problem? Because there is a humanitarian crisis at the border, and I think our current immigration system is unsustainable. What is our way out of it? Yeah, I think we need to, first off, realize that people are coming to America, and it's a moral issue that we need to allow them to come to the country, seek work seek to better their life. That's what people have done for centuries. So we need to recognize that on the moral front. From an economic front, we need to understand that our economy is not running as fundamentally well as it could be because we have put up barriers to immigration. 
we've got increased prices in housing. We've got increased costs in uh, agriculture. And this is all because we're putting up an artificial barrier that should not be there. And what's interesting is there's no enforcement of Devin Noon's family farm or Donald Trump's hotels, but it's just other places. I mean, to parade off 600 people in Mississippi about a month ago, um, I think at a poultry factory is just horrific. So, so what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, I actually agree with you. We're seeing that these individual people who are just coming and seeking a better life, they are being punished while the corporations and the employers themselves who are doing the hiring, the recruiting, maybe in some cases, even forging of documents to ensure that they're able to, to get cheaper labor. They're not being the ones targeted. They're not being the ones punished. Is that what you're saying? Well, we know that's a fact. Um, and what's interesting is Mar-a-Lago and other uh, Trump properties have had a history of recruiting um, immigrants so that they could pay them either under the table and retain Social Security and Medicare payments, which should go to the government uh, for our social safety programs, social uh, welfare programs. And they're playing these games, which are just entirely inappropriate. Um, these immigrants are not eligible for those programs in many cases, and that is the one of the biggest lies that continue to be peddled is by the Trump administration that they're stealing your benefits. Well, they're not eligible, and no, they're not. They're not getting benefits. They're paying into a system they don't receive. Right, and they're paying taxes every time that they go to the grocery store, they pay a sales Absolutely. tax. So, so they are truly contributing to our economy. And to be quite frank, there are a number of agricultural positions that – Plain and simply, white Americans do not want to do. Um, so someone has to fill these roles, um, and migrant workers in the past have always been the ones to do it. Well, but beyond that, when you look who is starting new businesses, most new businesses are getting started by first-generation and second-generation immigrants. So that's something to consider in terms of an economic impact. Your policies that are being pushed from the administration currently are having an absolute negative effect on the economy. So are you interested in decriminalizing the border or what is your position on some of these um, kind of more center left, left wing ideas that are coming up as part of the presidential election? Yeah, I, I guess I'm confused by that language because it feels very current administration as a talking point. Um, again, going to the border, I've got an entirely new appreciation that when you crossed the border previously, you weren't prosecuted as a felon. You were prosecuted basically for the same type of crime as jaywalking. Um, and federal courts, I mean, you weren't housed uh, without your children. You weren't separated from children, which is another uh, catastrophe that's going on. But it was treated as what it is, not that big a deal, um, and nor should it be. Again, we need immigrants to come to our country to keep our spirit refreshed. These are people who are living the dream of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And for Americans in your district now, how can you work to create jobs, good, strong, middle-class jobs for them? Well, let me first take a little bit of exception with the phraseology Americans, because people coming from Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador or even Mexico, which they're not coming from Mexico anymore. Mexicans in America are going back to Mexico, but they're Americans too. They are Central Americans, but the United States has kind of taken over this phrase that we're the only Americans. And there were a bunch of Americans here before we showed up, um, whether it was in Jamestown or in uh, Massachusetts, either one. So let me start by saying that 
second, the district is a well-to-do district on a socioeconomic and educational basis. Um, it is actually very blue. It is voted red in the past, but it is a well-to-do district where immigrants assimilate into the culture. Their kids are our neighbors. Um, their grandparents are engaged in the school. Everyone benefits by them being a part of our community. No one benefits by having uh, families separated and uh, parents confined or detained while children are at school. That helps no one. So the so the district is relatively well-to-do, as you've said. They're in a fine position socioeconomically. It's currently held by a Republican. So I'm curious about your perceived path to victory, even in 2018, when there was a so-called blue wave, um, it was still won, I think, by close to 10 points by a Republican. What makes you think and what uh, data do you have that shows that there is a path to victory for your race? Well, first off, I think there's a number of things that keep coming up. Um, One is gun violence. And while there hasn't been an incident directly in the district of late, um, El Paso happened. And while everybody says, yeah, but that was 10 hours away from your district, it was. But the current congressman, the incumbent, while he was in the state legislature, pushed for open carry. He carries the NRA's uh, water on any uh, bill they need to. uh, And he's got some other issues. But what we did contribute to El Paso, unfortunately, is the shooter came from this district. He came from Allen, Texas, right in the center of the district. When you people say, where was he radicalized? Well, he was radicalized right here. And that's a problem. Um, so there are a number of people who are unhappy that we can't get basic gun sense legislation passed. And I know it's passed the House. Obviously, it needs to get to the Senate. But I hear again and again when I talk to working mothers, dads, grandparents, why is it my kid can be inconvenienced at school with a school shooter drill or a lockdown drill, but we can't inconvenience gun owners with a simple background check to make sure they're not selling guns out of the back of their car. And no offense to Congressman Crenshaw, if he needs to loan out his guns to people who can't pass a background check, maybe we need to find somebody to run against him as well. Cause he needs to do something with his friends and re- rehabilitate them a little bit. I imagine that uh, Congressman Crenshaw will have plenty of uh, challengers in this next election, thanks to his newfound fame. Um, But I want to dig a little bit deeper into uh, your common sense gun control platform here. Um, So you're you're encouraging universal background checks. Is there anything else that's a part of the plan? Well, again, he's not uh, one of the favorites of most people in the Democrats, but I am old enough to remember when that quote liberal Ronald Reagan passed a assault weapons ban. And in fact, when he did that, I believe it was 86, he had the support of the NRA. So somewhere between 1986 and 2016, we know for a fact that they have started laundering money for Russia, which is a net negative, And they decided they were going to pose assault weapons bans. I've talked to more than one hunter. I have yet to find a single hunter who will tell me it takes them more than 10 shots to shoot their deer. So if you're a hunter and it takes 10 shots or a 30 round mag, you're probably not the right guy to be out in the woods anyway. There's very few people who talk about gun owner rights from a hunting perspective and claim to shoot, you know, having have to shoot more than uh, one round to fell their target. So it sounds like you're in favor of universal background checks and an assault weapons ban. And like you said, uh, for those who may not be familiar, the NRA was recently found by a Senate 
report, a reminder, the Senate is run by Republicans, they found that the NRA was basically functioning as a foreign asset, um, assisting Russia with their propaganda here in the United States. So I don't think you're going to be making many friends over at the NRA. Um, but are, are you okay with that? I mean, Texas is gun country. It is. Actually, I've had several great conversations with Fred Gutenberg. And if I've got to choose between uh, someone who has suffered incredibly over the gun rights issue and someone who is laundering money actively for Russia since probably 2010 is the last number I heard, um, I'm going to go with a guy like Fred Gutenberg. And for those who aren't familiar, Fred Gutenberg, uh, father of Jamie Gutenberg, who I believe was killed at Parkland um, as part of the, the school shooting there, just a, a horrible tra- tragedy. And he's, he's really dedicated his life uh, to activism and gun control since then. Um, what's your take on the current state of politics? We saw recently that you know Donald Trump met with Wayne LaPierre at the White House. Wayne LaPierre is the head of the NRA, and he basically came out and said, gun control legislation is dead as a result of impeachment. Uh, put me in the skeptical camp there. I don't think gun control legislation was ever alive. Um, but what's your read not only on uh, the current state of affairs for gun control, but also all this impeachment uh, process that's going on? Sure. Well, Again, a little bit different take. I feel like you buried the lead. The The comments, at least on the news that I read, was not only did they say that gun control was dead, but they basically said, hey, we at the NRA will fund your impeachment defense. And the last time I checked, that sounds a lot like a bribe. If you're willing to drop uh, money or drop a, a government program or a position in exchange for financial remuneration, it feels like that meets the textbook definition of a bribe to me. It sure sounds like a quid pro quo, and it wouldn't be the first one. Again, we've had multiple problems with this president. Um, I feel like the things that I wrote in the New York Times op-ed almost three years ago now are all coming true. We've proven he's a racist again and again. You know, Ken Cuccinelli, which is in, in complete ironic fashion, Ken was leading the floor fight against Donald Trump. So for him now to be running immigration services, I'm amazed. Um, But we know he's profiting off the presidency, which is the single most objective reason to deny him the presidency. And he's also bad at foreign policy. And we knew that during the election, 50 separate GOP national security and foreign policy experts said he was bad. Well, it appears that he's told uh, the foreign minister of Russia, uh, Lavrov, that we don't care about your playing in in our politics and uh, anything you might have done for the election. He said he was going to ignore it. So I look forward to him being impeached. Um, I'm kind of waiting to see if Republicans, just from a completely Machiavellian standpoint, will actually throw him overboard. Uh, I can't believe they haven't yet. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. There are a couple of key points there. Um, Former Senator Jeff Flake uh, went on, uh, I believe it was CNN or uh, another uh, morning show, and said if the impeachment vote in the Senate was held in private he would get 30 or 35 convictions and then be removed from office. But if it was in public, it's obviously a different story. And I want to touch on two things that you just said, Um, being bad at foreign policy and making money and profiting from his real estate, his golf courses, his hotels. If you look back at the whistleblower complaint, and then you look at the summary of the transcript that the Trump White House released, you'll notice that the, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, 
made a point to say, you know, Mr. President, the last time I was in New York, I stayed at uh, your hotel, effectively kind of saying, you know what, I'm putting money in your pocket. Um, I'm going to butter you up and I'm going to flatter you so that you'll be nice to me. It's really amazing how um, if you think back to President Jimmy Carter, he had to sell his peanut farm. And then every other president since then put their assets into a blind trust. Um, but Donald Trump is pretty nakedly engaging in corruption right out in the open. And I think and I hope that Democrats are going to include that in the articles of impeachment because it clearly violates the emoluments clause of the Constitution. No, I agree with that. It, clearly, I get the sense that they may be trying to just make it narrow. My concern is what happens if a you know, a popular president is a criminal. And that's why I feel like we need to address all of these issues. I am glad that the House leadership is finally on board. Um, I've been banging my head a little bit for weeks now saying, what is it going to take? Um, because I thought they were trying to run out the clock and wait till uh, they couldn't bring it up because of the election. But we see already uh, when this came up, when the whistleblower report came up, immediately the Trump administration said, oh, no, no, I'm trying to stop Joe Biden. And even this weekend, they're spending $10 million from where they got it, I don't know, on a known lie. And I'm shocked by the you know, parts of the media that are going to run this ad. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So what's interesting about um, this whole Joe Biden thing is they're really not hiding it in any kind of way. Rudy Giuliani has been tweeting about this for months, um, openly pressuring president of Ukraine. He's been admitting to uh, dabbling in the investigation on Fox News. He's been showing text messages. Um, this really could blow up and they're going to move very quickly. Um, they've already subpoenaed uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Um, but before we go down this rabbit hole, I could talk about this all night. I do want to come back to your congressional race. Um, so we've spoken about immigration. We've spoken about holding Republicans and Donald Trump accountable. Uh, we've spoken about gun control. Um, are there any other issues that are really central to your campaign? Well, we're going to focus on fixing the ACA. Uh, we do, again, I, I expect we're going to have significant labor support. Uh, at least I hope we do. They have fought, they have bled, they have negotiated in good faith for healthcare and insurance programs through those negotiations. And I hope we don't give that up. Um, 
there's some simple fixes that I think we need to do for healthcare. Number one, it is insane from an economic standpoint that the single largest consumer of healthcare in the world, Medicare, is not allowed to negotiate drug prices. Um, that's another thing that I found out going to Mexico that the difference in prices between Brownsville, Texas, and Matamoros is literally 10 to 1 or greater um, for some very common drugs. I think we have got to get big pharma back under control. This idea that, uh, and I'm forgetting who it was, but I read the other day where they said, look, my responsibility is not to cure the sick, but it's to shareholders. Yeah, your business is to cure the sick. That's why you got into business. Otherwise, you could do any number of other things. Um, so those are some things that I want to focus on. We've seen some crazy changes in emergency care over the past five years, at least locally with freestanding ERs. Uh, I will probably also focus some time um, in an area where I used to work in air uh, medical evacuation services. Some of those prices you've probably read about can range from thirty to $50,000 for a half-hour flight. And in many cases, those flights aren't even required. So th there's a substantial number of areas where we need to find cost savings in healthcare, and it doesn't negatively impact the patient. But we have to tell some of these profiteers, hey, that's not what you're in business for. Yeah. And I think one of the, the most important aspects of passing legislation um, is kind of being free of corruption in order to actually do what's right. So a question that I ask all of my guests, um, are you accepting corporate PAC dollars or special interest money in your race? I am not. Excellent. That is the right answer. And I think part of this uh, Trump wave that we're noticing, you know, he ran on drain the swamp, but he really did not drain it in any way. Um, and he's really exposing the, the terrible influence of money in politics. I think we need a real anti-corruption initiative. I think we need a real anti-corruption grassroots movement. And the only way we can do that is by getting money out of politics. Some people say it's unilaterally disarming when other people can leverage that money. But I think it's the only way to make real change once we're elected. So really glad to hear that uh, you're swearing that off. No, yeah, it's not a, a focus area. We're focusing on literally grassroots, low-level donors. We've got a long way to go to be competitive there, um, but we're confident that we're going to make an impact um, with some of those special interests where we just say, look, if you want to throw your money away, you can, but why would you give money to a guy who is in the minority, number one, and still going to be a backbencher if you reelect him? And in a district that, again, we are confident is going to flip, if not this time, certainly in two more years. So I have two more questions for you. Second to last one, is there anything that you would like our listeners to know about you that we haven't covered already? Um, I hope you go to www.sendchris.org. That will redirect you right now to an ActBlue account. We love grassroots donors who would consider it, but more importantly, uh, it's got our video on it. We announced about a week ago um, with that video. It got 300,000 views on Twitter, YouTube, um, and Facebook. We were really excited about those numbers. There were several people who posted it, uh, groups like Occupy Democrats and others that really gave it a boost. So we were excited to see that. Um, but that would probably be the big one because I, I don't think a lot of people do know about my change from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. I don't think they know uh, the threats that I was under where I was literally hopping from house to house um, every night from my announcement on December 5th. Uh, through the Electoral College vote. Uh, Christmas, six days later after the vote, was spent in a La Quinta hotel with my kids and my wife uh, because it wasn't safe to go back home even then. Uh, 
well, and like Joe Biden, again, right now the Trump administration is trying to smear him with a known lie. And they did the same thing. Um, Trump and company sicked Chuck Johnson and others after me on stories that have been disproven. Um, we started it in the intro that I was a responder to the Pentagon on 9-11, and they planted a story saying I wasn't. And that took literally a year to get disproven with FBI FOIA responses saying I turned in my camera, I had to be there because of check-ins and things like that. But it's clear that whoever the nominee is, it doesn't matter what's in their past because they're going to make up lies anyway. If they went to a McDonald's on Tuesday, they're going to say, well, Joe Biden was the guy at McDonald's who robbed it, not the guy who, you know, bought a Big Mac. So it's interesting the weapon, the weaponization of disinformation that's going on and has gone on since at least then, if not before. No, 100%. And we see that even more with um, outlets like the Daily Stormer or 4chan or uh, the Gateway Pundit. Um, the biggest uh, critics of fake news are often the biggest purveyors of fake news. Um, well, Chris, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for joining us. Again, for our listeners, go find Chris uh, at sendchris.com. You can make a donation there at the Act Blue website or uh try to sign up and, and volunteer for him. Chris, what are your social media handles? How can people find you? Sure. We are on Facebook at uh, Chris Suprin, TXO3. Uh, we are on t uh, Twitter, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, Suprin, S-U-P-R-U-N-T-X-O-3. Again, www.sendchris.org. And uh, again, send us a message. Let's talk. We believe that that's the best way on a one-on-one -on -one basis to convince people that we've got a plan to help North Texas to bring jobs to the area, fix healthcare, and not uh, discriminate against our brothers and sisters from Latin America. Excellent. Thanks again for coming on, Chris. And for our listeners, thanks for listening. Um, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Millen Politics. Uh, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Millen Politics, and stay tuned for our next episode.